Good morning. Good morning. Just some uh, props to Katie, Mama Katie, because she spent half the night in the hospital because little Emmett broke his arm in the trampoline. On an unrelated note, there's a trampoline for sale. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking about that joke, and I was really hoping it would land. Thank you for laughing. (laughs) Um, I want to introduce our storyteller for the day. Uh, I met him not too long ago. But as I was getting to know him, I just was feeling so humble to be in the presence of a man that God loved and uh, has raised up. And I'm so glad that he gets to share his story with us. And he's got such a cool name. I think he's some ancient superhero. Joseph Moriarty. Come on up. (laughs) Tell us your story. When Pastor Peter uh, mentioned that earlier today, I had a a pretty good chuckle about it. The name Moriarty actually means navigator in in Gaelic. And so um, it seems that not only was I drawn to the water for most of my childhood and upraising, but uh, in a funny way, the Lord's brought me back through his living water to a relationship um, that I very much cherish today. In... Um, 1965, I was born at Providence Hospital to two parents, Donna and James Moriarty, and I was the six of seven children. And we kind of grew up in a storybook upbringing. Um, Love, discipline, chores, food, provisions, all of it provided. Encouragement. And it it was certainly unique. I thought it was normal for everybody in that neighborhood, but obviously later in life, I realized how fortunate we were. But unfortunately, tragedy found its way to our doorstep when my parents tried to um, have an eighth child. And during the, uh, the birth process, uh, the baby died. And so it, uh, it, it created an incredible wedge in their relationship. And they separated and finally divorced in 1982. I was in high school at that time and not capable of coping with that first strike to my soul. I focused on sports, on studies, and then unfortunately I started dabbling with some unhealthy activities. Started drinking. And I started getting involved in inappropriate relationships and a pattern started. So I leap forward into college and amplify that with the liberty that I finally had with nobody around looking on my shoulder. And unfortunately, I got into a lifestyle that brought me further away from not just my family, but from a relationship to Christ in a church community. So for 18 years, I wrestled, and I destroyed any relationship that I had. Lots of good people. Unfortunately, I was too close to And I felt these insecurities, and one thing led to another because of my lifestyle. It didn't work out well. And so finally this caught up. Up in uh, Alaska in 2002, March of 2002, I dropped to my knees, and I cried out desperately, Lord Jesus, if you're there, you must know my circumstances. I just want to make it home. Help me make it home. And he did. He provided an extraordinary uh, response where I could 
make it back to Seattle. And then over a short time, he repaired all the relationships with my siblings, my parents, and true friends. I couldn't believe it. But I approached them in sincerity and I apologized for the way I had lived. Well, there was something missing still. I got back into the routine of life, started attending church, but there's more out there that I just didn't put my finger on. Ended up in British Columbia, and uh, right after an Easter service, I had this inspiration to go up to the mountains. Get to Whistler, it's so expensive, I, I can't afford to stay much time up at Whistler. So I looked around for some uh, affordable bed and breakfasts, and I found a list that was located some 20 miles north in a place called Pemberton and Mount Curry. Head that way, walk into three different B&Bs, walked out discouraged. And I'm usually not picky. If the B&B is clean with hot water, affordable, usually I'm going to step. But that day, I just couldn't find the right place. I'm leaving town. I see the sign for one more bed and breakfast that wasn't on my list. Approached the front door, and I was greeted by this lovely lady. And she said, can I help you? I said, yeah, I'm looking for a room for a few days. And she said, well, come down and take a peek. When she opened the door, on the entry hall was this beautiful piece of artwork. And it said, God is love. And I thought, you don't see that often enough. So she showed me the room. She said it was $23, and that included breakfast. <laughs> well, how long can I stay? So I went out, grabbed my backpack, came back in, and I decided to go for a walk. After a short walk, I returned, and Jolene's husband's Bob showed up. And they were engaged in a Bible study in the living room when I returned. And I thought, oh, this tiptoed down the, the hallway into my room. And they, Bob said, why don't you join us over here for the Bible study? And the first thing that came to my thought was, if they knew what kind of person I used to be, they wouldn't want me to join them for their Bible study. So even after the Lord had rescued me, and started working in my life, there was still something that I didn't feel right with. And they said, no, we, we'd feel blessed to have you join us for our Bible study. And then after the study, they said, can we pray for you? And I don't think anybody's ever prayed for me that way, in that boldness. So I knew there was something different about Bob and Jolene. Well, I came to realize that they had been in, in missionaries' work for 32 years in that community, working with the First Nations people of, of Canada. And I thought, well, you've got something, something more that I need. What makes you so different? And they said, well, we were given a second chance at life some 32 years ago. And I said, well, tell me about it. They were on a mountain road, and they skidded off the road into about a 100-foot ravine. And they crawled out, made it up to the roadside. And when the first responder showed up, he made a comment looking over the hill. Whoever's in that car certainly is dead. No one walks away from those types of accidents. And Bob and Jolene said, no, we, we were in that car. And so the first responder said, 
you've been given a second chance at life. Perhaps God has a plan for you. Shortly thereafter, they made a covenant agreement to serve Jesus the rest of their life. And that's what launched them into ministry work. And so now I'm thinking, oh, did I squander my life? Would Jesus want somebody like me to be a part of his family in that capacity to serve others? And so I said, could you pray for me because I'm having a problem? I, I just don't think I'll be able to fit into this. And they said, well, we'll pray for you, but we, we believe that the Lord has a plan for your life. But you have to do one thing. And I said, well, what's that? They said, you have to give him all your heart. If you want to serve the way Jesus has called us to serve him, you have to give him all your heart. And I said, I don't know if I can do that. you got to pray for me, please, because I want what you have. Two days later, I wanted to give back immediately, so I started painting the trim on their bed and breakfast. And about um, an hour into that, I just was flooded with all these memories as a child growing up in Seattle. And then as a teenager, extraordinary moments. But then when I got hit with this, this infliction on my soul, and then I drifted away from my family and my friends. But then, in my darkest hour up in Alaska, 18 years thereafter, he rescued me and he started repairing the damage that I caused to others. And I thought, why me? Why would you do that for me? And there was like this light bulb moment. It was, you walked away from me, but I've never turned my back on you. And so I made that commitment there at the B&B that I wanted to serve in the rest of my life. And it's odd what happened thereafter, but it seemed like everything around me went silent. The birds, the squirrels, the, the sounds of cars driving by. And I set my paintbrush down and leaned up against the B&B, &B, and this is what it felt like. It felt like the Holy Spirit put his hand right across my chest, and I couldn't move. And then my heart was just, something happened. It was just filled with life and liberty and, and a taste of Jesus I've only heard people talking about. And I came out of this really quick and walked inside, and Jolene was in a rocking chair. Halfway through, she stopped, and she said, what happened? You look like a different person. And I made this. This is so strange. I said, was there an electric wire in the backyard you forgot to tell me about? Because <laughs> I've been hit by something. And she said, it wasn't electricity. Why don't you just go and spend time with Jesus and thank him for what he's done? We'll take care of all the equipment. We'll take it from here. But go thank him. So I drove up to this lake and spent some time with the Lord like I've never spent time with him. And I made that commitment to serve him the best of my abilities for the rest of my life for what he did in my life at that moment. And so that was my second chance at trying to be a part of the family of Christ and to give back and, and be grateful for what he's done. Last week, Peter, Pastor Peter made mention of a um, passage from Ezekiel. 
It says, I will give you a new heart. I will take the heart of stone and I will give you a fleshly heart and put my spirit in that heart. And I think I was a recipient of just that. That was the moment I got a new heart in Christ. This morning's scripture reading is from the book of 2 Thessalonians. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading from chapter 1, verses 1 through 12 from the new NIV. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank you, God, for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shout out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power, he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning again, everyone. You guys doing good? Uh, my name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here. And just a word about Nicholas Fund for Education. Uh, it's such a great ministry for two reasons that I was thinking about. Uh, one is that um, <clears throat> I was reading this week that the best purpose that gives us the greatest meaning that allows us to really engage that purpose in the most sustained way is when there's a combination of selfish and selfless purposes for it. And Nicholas Fund really is like that, that when you go and you give, when you meet the people, you sort of go there to give, but you realize you really are given to in a way that you can never match. And so I think there's something so beautiful and sustainable about the work that Nicholas Fund for Education does. And then secondly, uh, there's the short game, there's the long game, and then there's the infinite game, and then there's the ultimate game. These are the four levels of games, the way we live our life. And Nicholas Fund really invites us to experience all four levels of that. There's short-term gain, there's long-term benefit, and then it's an infinite game because they keep going, but then it's an ultimate game because we are sowing eternal seed. 
And so I want to invite you to think about Nicholas Fund and some of the other ministries that are going to come at your way through our church. Really is a good way to beyond, uh, a way to live beyond our life. Uh, second word about uh, some of the Sundays coming up uh, in our schedule. Uh, we have Palm Sunday coming up. And Palm Sunday, I'm going to touch on the topic of rage as it relates to truth. Sociologists are saying that because of the suppression of truth in our culture these days, it's turning into what they're calling the age of rage, that there's anger because there's suppression. And so I want to talk about that as, a, uh, as we see a picture of that uh, when Jesus was entering Jerusalem. And then we have Good Friday service, and Elise is going to be leading us in that. And some of you know from having been to Ash Wednesday service, that leading those services is one of Elisa's superpowers. And so that's going to be really powerful. And then on Easter Sunday, uh, we have in our society sort of front row seats to see the corrosive effect of power. And Easter Sunday is such a contrast to that with Jesus who refused to be corroded by power. Instead, he abdicated power. And then we saw that God saw to it that his body did not see corruption, as scripture puts it. And so we see such a contrasting image of the ways that we can handle power. And so I want to invite you to think about people that you can invite to either Palm Sunday about rage and truth, and Good Friday, people who need to connect to their pain, and then third, uh, people who are really wrestling with the role of power in our society these days. Okay? But today, we're going to talk about hell. Elise told us uh, when Lent began that we're not allowed to say the H word. She meant hallelujah. And she didn't say anything about hell, so here I am talking about hell. And the passage points us to it, so I thought it was an opportunity to do that. The tone of this sermon is really an invitation for you to do further, move further than the sermon. It's not really me giving you answers, but I do want to get you started, but it's really the ball, I hope, lands in your court. So let's jump into it. The first word I have for us is a word of caution. In my experience as a Christian and in my work as a professional Christian, a pastor, uh, over these decades, it has been my experience that Christians who talk about hell, almost all of them has never examined their own heart about why they are talking about hell. I'm not sure if it's coming from a place of love or if it's coming from a place of insecurity and judgment. Secondly, the people that I've encountered who talk about hell, it has been my experience that almost none of them have ever done a personal study on the topic of hell. They've heard some preacher maybe talk about it. Maybe it's even in common culture. But they themselves have never, have never spent time and examined what the scriptures have to say about hell. And so my invitation to all of us as Christians, if you are Christians here today, is to really uh, examine your own heart. Are you somebody that loves people? Do you care about people? Is that what's really overflowing 
from your heart? Or is it maybe uh, you're angry or you're insecure or you're trying to be manipulative? What's really going on on a heart level? And then secondly, have you ever studied it? I invite you to study on this topic. Do your own homework. What does the Bible have to say about it? What doesn't it say about it? Do you understand? And so come to some sense of understanding and confidence about this topic. And until you do, I think what we can say is, I'm sorry that my heart is not actually overflowing with love. That's where I should be, but that's not where I am today. And for that, I'm sorry. And as a professing Christian, I should know more about this topic. But in all honesty, I really haven't examined this topic at all, at least not adequately. I've heard some things I think I know more than I actually do. And for that, I'm also sorry. And actually, on behalf of the body of people that I represent, whom you may have interacted with, even if it's just somebody with a billboard hanging off their shoulders in front of events, claiming that people are going to hell, on behalf of those people, I apologize for the experience that you may have had. And so that's my first word to us, a word of humility, a word of honesty, really a word of caution. Second point I want to make about hell is hell. If you do start down the road of studying hell, what you're going to find is that the word that's translated as hell in the English language represents a variety of words. All of them are literal or metaphorical. And none of them are like the common evangelical fundamentalist understanding of the idea of hell. The Bible's Usage of this word is many words, and those words do not agree with the way that common society understands the concept of hell. And maybe that's surprising to some of you. Maybe that's offensive to some of you. Great. Whatever your reaction, I hope it spurs you on to ask the question, what is hell? What does the Bible have to say about it? What do I know about it? What should I know about it? And go do your homework. I was a quirky kid. And so starting like in later elementary school, into middle school, and into high school, I was obsessed with this topic because I get obsessed with topics. And so I studied hell, and it scared me, some of it. Some of it was just fascinating. But I remember thinking, this is so different than what my Sunday school teachers taught me. Where do they get this idea of hell? And so we'll go into that a little bit today. But the application I have for you is study this topic. Ask and answer this question for yourself. And if you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to read the Bible and love the Bible and trust the Bible, this is one of those topics, topics you should have some base knowledge of based on your own study of it. Okay? Third, now we are getting into today's passage. I want to propose to you that there is a sort of an allusion to heaven. And this idea of heaven is primarily described in the Bible as connection. So here we see in verse 3 at the second half of it, 
uh, Paul is writing to a persecuted church. And they're experiencing um, lots of hardships on the outside. But as a community, they're doing really, really well. And so Paul is commending them. And he says, the main reason that I commend you is because the love all of you have for one another is increasing. That is, you are beginning to create a kind of new community. A kind of a, a slice, a picture of a slice of heaven here on earth. Even though there's sort of this hellish experience all around you. You as a body of believers are beginning to understand what heaven is made of. And he says, heaven is like love. Heaven is love. Heaven is when you are connected to each other. Now, I don't know all that heaven is. I think there's a lot more to be said about heaven than there is to say about hell according to Scripture. But I believe that the cornerstone of the experience and the reality and the state of heaven is us being unhindered, connected to one another and to God. Where there's no at all experience of distance or separation. There's no sense of otherness. Even though we are going to be unique individuals, we will be totally connected. In fact, Jesus himself says, the way the world will know, the primary way that the world will know that you belong to me is you will love one another. By your love, they will know that you are my disciples, he says. And so we get to this a little bit. And this is a nice little on-ramp to what I think Scripture has to primarily teach us about what hell is. And hell, I think, is total, utter separation from each other and from God primarily. And I think this is kind of an interesting idea to begin with because whenever I saw hell depicted in cartoons Saturday mornings, there is a devil with sort of horns and he's got a pitchfork. But there's a whole community of people. They're all sort of just hanging out, suffering together. And I think scripture teaches there is no together. There is total, utter separation. And here we see it in verse 9. And it's set up beginning in verse 6. Verse 6 says, God is just. And then Paul begins to explain that he's going to sort of bring justice, final, total, utter justice on the face of the earth. There will be no lies. There will be no darkness. There will be nobody getting away with anything. There will be an account given for every single wrong ever. Right? And the ultimate punishment, if you will, the ultimate consequence of justice is, verse 9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction. And here's the phrase I want you to walk away with, is shut out from the presence of the Lord. That the final and ultimate justice, judgment, and because God is just, some thinkers would say, by your choice, if you choose over and over again to live a life independent of God, that you are shutting him out, finally, on the final day, he will accept your choice. And he will allow you to shut yourself out, and he will shut 
you out, give you what you have asked for. And that's shut out from the presence of the Lord. Total, final, utter separation from God himself. You do your own Bible study, but I believe, according to Scripture, this is the predominant metaphor, predominant descriptor for what hell is, separation from God himself. So let's do a little bit of a Bible study and see where we see this in Scripture. Luke chapter 16 is my single best passage for what I think separation from God looks like and feels like. Jesus himself tells this story about a rich man who was cruel and heartless, and there was this poor man who was starving, and presumably Lazarus starved to death. That's the name of the poor man. And the rich man also died. And they're both dead, and they find themselves in this place. It's depicted as a physical place. And in this place, in the center of this place, is a deep chasm that nobody can cross. And on one side of the chasm is this rich man. And on the other side is Abraham and this poor man, Lazarus. And this poor man finds himself in what Jesus calls Abraham's bosom. And the rich man still is completely unchanged, Tim Keller says, because he still believes he gets to order Lazarus around. He still believes that he's better than Lazarus. And he says, I want you to command Lazarus to go find some water, dip his finger into the water, and then bring his wet dripping finger and place that finger onto my tongue because I am burning up in this fire. Now, the details are important in this parable. Why does this rich man, if he's burning up in maybe hell, does he want water on his tongue? Why not on his hair? You know, why not on his skin? Why his tongue? Have you ever noticed that? That in this place that's described as hot, fire, the burning is not from the outside, but it's from the inside out. That's question number one. That's clue number one. And then we have John chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus, who knew no sin, Scripture says, became sin for us. He took on sin. And so he's going to experience the totality and the ultimate consequence of sin. And that's separation from God. And so while he's on the cross, Jesus cries out, Why have you forsaken me? My God, my God. Right? And in that experience of separation from God the Father, there's sort of a rendering of the universe itself. We see this because it gets dark. Something's happening sort of just on a cosmic level. Jesus is separating from God, and in chapter 19, verse 28, he's describing that experience, and he says, I am thirsty. And the people misunderstood him to mean that he was physically thirsty, so they got him some vinegar or wine, they put it on his tongue, and then he rejected it, because that's not what he meant. To his dying day, people misunderstood Christ. But what was he thirsty for, and why his tongue? Why his mouth? That's clue number two. Third, 
we have Job chapter 34. Job, as you know, experienced a lot of punishment in life, right? Describing this punishment, Job says, if God chose and he withdrew his spirit from you, we would all human beings would return to the dust. And the idea is sort of this spirit being sucked out from you. It's not this idea of burning from the outside, but it's this separation from God. God separating himself on a fiber level, like a molecular level. He's withdrawing himself from you, and then you cease to exist, and you dry up from the inside out, and you become dust. That's the picture. That's clue number three. I'm going to give you one more. Revelation chapter 21, verse 6. When everything is over, all of the suffering is done. Every tear has been wiped away. Every word in the book of life has been read. Everything is reconciled. How does that happen? Jesus says, to the thirsty, I will give water. Again, again, the feeling of not having God is not experienced from the outside, but it's experienced from the inside. It's a kind of thirst. And so scripture is always depicting God himself as water or living water. The spirit is water, right? The offering that Jesus provides, offers to the Samaritan woman is living water. And here Jesus does it again. To thirsty, I will give water. And he goes on to say, I will give living water. I want to submit to you today that the rewarder, what we call heaven, the cornerstone of it, the defining reality of heaven is togetherness with God himself. And opposite that, the opposite of heaven, what we call hell, is separation from God himself. And this separation is experienced as a kind of burning up from the inside. Now that scripture, I want to give you three science examples Really quick here. Uh, number one, uh, you can Google this, but it's kind of graphic. I, di I did the dirty work for us here. Dying of dehydration feels like a burning from the inside. Now, medical experts will tell you there's a kind of euphoria you experience towards the end, right before you die, because you're delirious and you're disconnecting, your brain is shrinking and all that. But prior to that, while you're still conscious, while you are still yourself, What's happening is you start burning from the inside. Number one symptom, you get a fever, a really, really high fever. You will die from this fever. You will lose your sense of self from this fever. And your tongue will start swelling up, and it will begin to crack. And the thing that you will want is water on your tongue. Okay? Second... Why solitary confinement? Why is solitary confinement such a torture that it's outlawed? Why is this considered to be so inhumane? Because at the center of what it means to be a human being is to be connected. And you can do a lot of research, and there's lots of talk shows that have delved into this topic of love and connection. One story that I reread uh, this week was how much Reese's monkeys in the 70s wanted their mom so badly, maybe it was the 60s, that they had these fake mom monkeys that would shoot 
you know, weapons at them, like it would hurt, but they would still go back because they wanted to be connected to their mom so badly. Right? Solitary confinement. Just ask that question. Why connection? And then third, last, consider Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. He said these are all the needs that human beings have. And in this order, we need it. The first one is physical safety. You have to find shelter. You have to know you're not going to die. Secondly, you have to have food in your belly. You have to know you're not going to die tomorrow. So here it is. The most primary need is to know you're not going to die today. The second one is you're not going to die tomorrow. And as soon as there is a tomorrow, the third need is what? Love and connection. As soon as you're alive and you can check that box, the next emergency in your life is connection. Why? I believe the scripture is correct that you and I were made for living water. We, were, we are physically 70% water, but we are 100% in need of God himself. And the relationships we have in connection to each other, these are placeholders. I know this. Because Hollywood marriages fail all the time. And I have this sort of sick satisfaction I feel when Hollywood marriages fail. I know, I'm an awful person. But here's why. Because they are the most beautiful people. They have everything they could possibly want. And yet they still realize upon so-called arrival that that wasn't it either. That there's still more. That it's not water they're after. They're after living water. And Revelation 21 says, Jesus alone gives living water. Two scholars that I want to point you to if you want to study. Uh, one is C.S. Lewis. His depiction of hell was this. You may mumble your li- you know, during your lifetime, but if you cease to cease mumbling. If you, if you don't stop mumbling, at first you are someone who mumbles, but you are soon going to become just a mumble. You cease to exist, only the mumble exists. Right? So that's C.S. Lewis. John Stott, I think he's my favorite thinker on the topic of hell. He says, he asks this question. He says, if all things are from God, that reality and existence itself comes from God, that he is everything. He is reality itself. If God were to withdraw himself from you, the way scriptures depict him doing, what you will be left? C.S. Lewis says, just the mumble will be left. And then John Stott says, but even the power to mumble comes from a source of power. Where does that come from? It's a perverted version of something. And if God takes that something too, and everything is sucked out of you, what you exist, what is that final state of you? And he ends his thought on hell with that question. And that question is meant for us to wrestle with. And this is where Jesus comes in. The ministry of Jesus Christ, why God sent his son to die for us, is to reconnect us to himself, to reconcile us so that he can be in us again. 
This is the whole mission of God. And we end with these verses. Romans chapter 1, verse 17 says, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The word righteousness does not mean morally superior. It means connected in the right way. And I'll have to do a whole sermon on that. But it's different from the way we falsely understand it. Understand, we understand it. It means to be reconnected in the right manner. And so that's why the scripture, especially the book of Romans, uh, teaches that Jesus is God's righteousness, meaning Jesus is God's reconnection plan. And then it says that Jesus is our righteousness because we are connected to God through Christ. And then Romans says you are God's righteousness because now you are connected to Christ. And so we have Romans validating that salvation is reconnection. And the first Corinthians 1:30 says, "He is the reason you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption." See, all these other words, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, they are supporting this main purpose, which is reconnection or relationship with Christ. That's salvation, that's life. And then finally, Colossians 1.19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, here it is, to reconcile himself to all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the Christian gospel, that you are made to live in connection to God and by God in peaceful connection to each other the right way, in righteousness. But that was shattered. And the only thing that can restore, reconcile, reconnect us to God in the right way, therefore to each other, is through the work that Jesus alone accomplished on the cross. This is the gospel. Do you believe this? that everything else you're trying to connect to, those are illegitimate ways of meeting this deep, deep need that we have to reconnect with God himself. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we cry out to you today from places that we don't even know about so deep, so ancient. We long for you. We long to be reconciled to each other. So God, this week, this is my prayer, that we would experience, each of us in our own way, a kind of reconnection to you and a reconnection to each other. Do this work, God. Bring to our mind orchestrate situations, confront us, whatever you need to do, reconnect us this week. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.